Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olivest. Today we'll begin with a few quotes, so just let them sink in. First, from W.E.B. Du Bois, quote, To be a poor man is hard, but to be a poor race in a land of dollars is the very bottom of hardships, end quote. Second, from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., quote, All too often, when there is mass unemployment in the Black community, it's referred to as a social problem. And when there is mass unemployment in the white community, it's referred to as a depression. But there is no basic difference. The fact is that the Negro faces a literal depression all over the United States. End quote. And a third quote, a saying that goes, When Wall Street catches a cold, Harlem gets pneumonia. Many of us have heard about the racial wealth gap. Maybe we're even familiar with statistics, such as the fact that during the 2008 financial crisis, almost half of the wealth of the Black community was lost. But how much do we know about the root causes of the racial wealth gap, or what the real implications are? To learn about this issue, I read The Color of Money, Black Banks, and the Racial Wealth Gap. And I am so excited to welcome its author, Mersa Baradaran. Welcome, Mersa. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Your book made such an impact on me. I was so really blown away and read it really slowly. There's quite a lot of data. And I really appreciated that. I learned so much from the book. I mean, it's full of data and also full of like real stories that make an emotional and, you know, psychological impact as well. So can't recommend it highly enough to listeners. What we usually do on the podcast is that I'll introduce you first professionally, and then we'll have you introduce yourself personally right after that. Marissa Baradaran is a professor of law at UC Irvine Law School. She writes about banking law, financial inclusion, inequality, and the racial wealth gap. Her scholarship includes the books How the Other Half Banks and the award-winning The Color of Money, Black Banks, and the Racial Wealth Gap, both published by the Harvard University Press. Baradaran and her books have received significant national and international media coverage and have been featured in the New York Times, The Atlantic, Slate, American Banker, The Wall Street Journal, and Financial Times on NPR's Marketplace, C-SPAN's Washington Journal, and PBS's NewsHour, and as part of TEDx at the University of Georgia. She has advised U.S. senators and congressmen on policy, testified before the U.S. Congress, and spoken at national and international forums like the U.S. Treasury and the World Bank. And like I said, we'll be discussing the color of money today. And so, Marissa, again, thanks so much for being here. And I wonder if you can now start us off by telling us about you, where you're from, and kind of the influences and factors that have gone into the work that you do today. Yes, um, sure. Thank you. I was born in Iran. I immigrated to America when I was nine. We joined the church, the LDS church at that point. But half of us, like my mom and, and my sisters and I would go. But I ended up at BYU. As the first time I'd been to Utah was my first day at BYU. And had been in the church for a while and left probably around, I don't know, maybe a while ago, like 10 years ago, but I taught at BYU for a couple of years and then I taught at UGA and I'm now at UCI and I've written mostly about my specialties in banking law and I have wed my passions with my skills, which, you know, is my passions have been in justice and uh, equality and also like understanding what went wrong and when it went wrong and how it went wrong. And, um, so when I write these books, it's usually, you know, I got tenure, you know, years ago, decade, a decade ago, and I I don't have to be writing these books. I could be writing these journal articles, you know, that nobody would read, but the books have been my own personal sort of 
let me take five, six years and try to understand something. And the color of money was that that long. I mean, how the other half banks, I think I had more of a sense of where it was going to go. Color of Money started as a whole different book and ended up as that book. And I have another book coming out in May that is also that kind of like a personal journey through the materials to see what comes out and what Color of Money, it started to be about like these weird outside banks, like these immigrant banks. There was all this stuff in the literature, like, oh, there's this like Italian bank and German bank. Like, why do they have to, you know, so I was going to do this book about these immigrant banks and what that showed about money and finance. And as I started digging around in that research, that led me to, let, let me just focus on Black-owned banks because there was something there. And then it became a book really about like the racial wealth gap and not just that, how, the myths that we tell about the market, about race, about how economics works. And so that that's essentially what the book covers. And then each book kind of leads to the next book. And then the third book that is coming out in May goes more into that, in that like really just tackling the ideology that kind of took hold in the nineteen late 1960s, 1970s, um, justifying these inequalities where, you know, the civil rights laws had come out, you know, in the 60s saying, well, you can't discriminate based on, you can't do Jim Crow, you can't do segregation. And, you know, after World War II, you can no longer, it's not okay to say some races are inferior. It was never okay. But the world just kind of like that consciousness changed. But you have to justify, if you're in power, the fact that, you know, Black people live in the ghetto and they didn't have as much jobs. And so you're like, well, you know, it's, you can't use these old laws and ideologies. So these ideologies adapt. And the ideology that adapted and came out of that moment was this like free market slash, oh, it's the market that did this. You know, it's not the laws. It's not a, a century of slavery and Jim Crow. It is supply and demand curves and just the invisible hand, which, you know, as this book shows, you know, I say this either the U.S. market wasn't capitalist because this is not capitalism, what you see in this book and what anyone experiences in or outside of those redlined areas is not capitalism. And I can go into that later as to why. Or, you know, capitalism isn't what we think it is in this like, oh, it doesn't discriminate. And I don't think either of those things are true. I just think capitalism is a, is a great theory, a great way of running an economic, you know, like pricing regime and all of that stuff. It's just not this economy that the U.S. has had. It, it, you know, you cannot describe a system as capitalist that doesn't allow certain people to have certain jobs, you know, for many, many years and has so much government intervention in the process of banking, which is what I study. And so I got into this as by way of introduction, I left law school and I went right to work at Wall Street at one of these big law firms. Our clients were banks. And I was there from 2005 until 2010 during the financial crisis. And I saw, look, we were advising all these banks. And then all of a sudden, the Fed is like printing money to put into these banks. And it was all legal. Only we were the ones creating the laws. We were the ones that wrote the laws afterwards. It was all like perfectly like above board legally, but it was unfair uh, as people were losing their jobs. And that ideology just broke down for me at that moment. It's like, oh, this is not, this is not capitalism at all because they have a money printer, right? And those guys don't. And we're blaming these homeowners for losing their homes where the banks had made, they were just as dumb 
I mean, like we were blaming, oh, these guys are dumb. They over leveraged. Those banks didn't know what they were doing. They were sophisticated. They were, they screwed up, but they had connections and there was this whole ideological framework that needed to be defended. And the Fed came in and defended it. And it wasn't just the Fed. It was the presidency, both parties. It was started during Bush, continued through Obama. It's not Republican or Democrat. It is an ideology. And I call it neoliberalism in my third book. I, I go into it a little bit in chapter six of this book. It starts around you know the Nixon era. And it's this idea that the market decides things like this outside godlike force that cannot be meddled with or else bad things will happen. So before we started our conversation, Marissa, I just want to have like one little tangent because I know that you've also done a lot of work on patriarchal systems. And because this podcast is you know, about patriarchy and the intersections of other oppressive systems. I'd love it if you could just talk a little bit about the work that you've done specifically on patriarchy as well before we dive into the color of money. Yeah, actually, you know, I haven't written a book about it, but it is the life I've lived. And, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, you cannot be a woman in finance. You can't be a woman at all, but you can't have done anything in any system of like Wall Street or academia or a place I've been without rubbing elbows with patriarchy on the daily. You can't be a mother of three children or member of the church without dealing with that. But what's fascinating is as I've gone into my money research, finding, again, my personal battles merging with my academic battles. And my academic battles were always with these myths that we tell about the poor. And that, if they're going to just boil it down to one thing. It's like, you're wrong about why people are poor. <laughs> and let me show you. Let me take seven years and read all the documents and show you. And what I think, uh, what this last book did, it was a very, very painful book to write. And I literally just like searched for like, when did it go wrong? When was he just up the gold standard? Because if you go back into money's history, what is money, right? Money is this agreed upon value. It's something that has changed over time it was gold coins, it was gold bars, paper. Now it's just digital. And you look at Bitcoin, right? Came out when I, my first year at BYU, the white paper came out. And now, you know, it was worth like nothing. And now it's worth $46,000. It's still it's not useful for anything. It's just that you had a bunch of people agree that that is valuable. And as long as you agree that that's valuable, it is valuable. That's how the US dollar works. That's how any economy works is we all agree that we're going to take that money. And if you can take it, right, then it's valuable. And going back into the history of money and gold and kind of realizing that the way that all those ideas about money needing to be scarce and, you know, this like only the king can do it and it's got to be backed by some military or whatever. That same moment was also the moment where, you know, you could sell a daughter into slavery to pay off your debt, right? And women were the first slaves, right? In any society before, you know, the slave trade began in the 1600s when the Portuguese go to Africa and start trading slaves. And then 1450 is when colonization kicks off with South America. And well before that, you have the selling of daughters and sons also, but mostly daughters for debt. And if you look at the Old Testament <laughs> or the New Testament or any holy book whatsoever, 
you see one evidence of this, right? There's a lot of like, oh, you know, in Leviticus, there's, you know, the sound the Liberty Bells, like on the Liberty Bells is Leviticus, you know, proclaim freedom and it's a debt jubilee. And it's like, tell the daughters to go back to their homes, right? And Jesus, right? You come in, you're like, you cannot with debt enslave people in, in the system. And after that, of course, then you have like continental takeovers for gold bars that like, you know, I mean, if you just envision world history as these like pirates from Spain and then these pirates from Great Britain, we're not even talking about empires at this point. We're talking about like Francis Drake and Columbus and Pizarro, these like mercenaries that go on commission from the crown to say, go find gold go get nutmeg in India. And then, you know, they land here. Like, this is India. They have, they don't have nutmeg, but they have gold. We're going to slaughter and take the gold. And that crime begins centuries of war over this ideology of what is value, right? So you go, instead of trading with the Native Americans here who had like these robust systems, like this isn't, this was not this desolate land there was trade, there was civilization, there was philosophers that went to Europe at the time to, you know, try to explain their system of property and all this stuff. And instead of trading, instead of learning from them, they slaughtered them and took jewels. So that's race. And then they have to use a theory, right? So that comes first. The money comes and then it's like, oh, we did it because they were savages. Like the guys who murdered these people were like, oh, we did it because they were savages. If you think about that word and who is saying it about whom, right? And so race is used then. And then after that, 200 years later, they go to Africa and they really up race, right? So race becomes this imaginary construct to justify slaughter. And the moment of empire starts where you can say, we will come, we will take over your land. We will take the women and their bodies, right? That they're our property, right? And the second women and people become property for what? For money, empire? I mean, like some symbol that is out there that no longer exists. Yet we still have these ideas about money built into our system. And maybe we know some of this stuff. I think it is incredibly liberatory though, when you really understand how deep it goes, I think it can feel very like, oh, this is awful. But when you realize all of the wrong thinking that we have about value, it becomes very free because it's like, oh, well, maybe, you know, all these thoughts that I had about like, oh, if I'm not working and making money, I'm not valuable. If I'm not, you know, like just men are inherently more valuable in this economy because, that's how it was structured. <laughs> yep. You know, <laughs> it's yep. a male economy, right? And 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 value is measured by how much you can make in this bullshit system of like, oh, who are the highest paid people? It's like, you know, the Sam Bankman freaks of the <laughs> right? Who the people are, you know, like maybe good at math, arguably, but more good at believing in their own bullshit for the most part, you know? <laughs> anyway. Uh, so I think there's a lot of intersections and depending on how deep you want to go, I think there's a lot worth exploring. Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, I can tell already that we could spend hours talking yeah. about all kinds of things. But um, yeah, thank you for that introduction. Amazing. I'm looking forward to your next book. 
for sure. But for now, let's dive into the book itself, into more about the racial wealth gap. And I was blown away even from just the very first concept. One of the first things you talk about is that when the Emancipation Proclamation was signed in 1863, and here I'll just quote the book, the Black community in 1863 owned a total of 0.5%, so half of 1% of the total wealth in the United States. This number is not surprising. Slaves were forbidden to own anything, and the few freed Blacks living in the North had few opportunities to accumulate wealth. So my question for you, Marissa, is it's been more than 150 years since then. So how has it grown? What's the percentage of wealth held by Black Americans now? Um, yeah, so it hasn't changed. It's 1%, something around that. And you know, you, you can obviously come up with counterexamples. What about Oprah? What about LeBron James? And Jay-Z, yes. We're talking about means. We're talking about combined. Uh, you know, if you're, let's say, 14% of the population, why should you have less than 1% of the wealth? Um, and then if you take that globally, it, the number is way worse. And I, I want to be clear, it's not like a white, black thing. It is not that every white person is rich and every black person is poor. Yeah, yeah. Okay? And so that's where race gets mixed up. Um, but there has been a, a joining up of race and poverty and a criminalization of poverty that has also created this system of inequality. And so when people say systemic racism, that's what they mean. It's like, look, forget about hearts and minds here. Let's talk about property values and the way school districts are funded and uh, where police show up and what kinds of things are criminalized, things like that. And I mean, I finished writing this before Trump had won. Oh, okay. you know, I had to like redo the end after I realized because I was preparing for a Clinton presidency. That's where it was going. So I was kind of writing my chapters to like convince left people that like, look, we still have this race problem. You guys think it's over because we've got a black president, you know, and then Trump won and did a lot of that for me, you know. <laughs> yeah. And unfortunately, the book preceded, you know, Black Lives Matter and the conversations around this stuff. So now I think, you know, I go out there and people are like, oh, yeah, we know about that. And it's like, oh, that's great, right? That's the sober lining. I think a lot of the things I felt in writing the book, I'm like, how am I going to convince people that this is important? And, you know, George Floyd did that in a second. And all of a sudden, these conversations just bubbled up to the surface. And a lot of us, people had, who had specialized in this stuff, had been writing. And it sucks to have your book become relevant because of something like that. But it is good that the conversation is there. And I think that a lot of those conversations need to be happening across the board, like the way that gender also, you know, race, gender, just systems and ideologies that keep a privileged few in power and convince those that aren't that it's their fault yep. that they don't, you know, or it's something about them that makes them not as good, not as mathy, whatever it is. That ideology is like a mental violence, assaults yep. on the wound. And that's what the book is filled with is like, there's this George Bernard Shaw quote, I think, and he says like, basically Americans have told black people that they're only good enough to be like a shoeshiner. And that just so happens that that's the only job that they've let them do. Yes. It's like this double thing is like, you're only as good as that. But, but like by law, that's the only job that we're going to let you do. Yeah. And there's many examples of this in the black community of like basketball or right. boxing, right? There's all these ideas like basket, black people can't do basketball. They're just not like whatever smart enough. 
boxing is a white man's sport. And then you get like one black boxer in the 1910s and there's like, okay, well, boxing can be black now. Baseball can be black. And the way that the economics of that works is like, look, when there's a demand, when you can see it, the supply is always there. The talent is always there. When you can see a black basketball player, you're like, let me go find more black basketball players. And now all you see is black, right? Mm. Whereas it's, it's hard to imagine that 40 years ago, you would have thought that basketball was a white thing, right? 50 years ago, let's say, whatever, whenever that time was. And it's the same with venture capital. So venture cap, like 1% goes to black, 2% of venture capital goes to women, 2%. And it's because we don't see it. Like, look, who are our heroes? We've got Steve Jobs, yeah, Sam Mapenfried, Elon. And it's a specific type of genius that we recognize. And it's a very male-coded. And I will say not male-coded. It's, it's um, logical, rational, masculine. And we all, I think, are half masculine, half feminine in just different iterations. And I actually live in that world of, like, logic, a little bit on the spectrum. I can understand that stuff. I don't get mistaken for some like, you know, absent-minded genius professor, you know, because of the body that I live in. But I see in my students, when I look out on a class, because I am who I am, I can see, you know, like when you can be blind to race and gender, it's amazing what happens, (laughs) you know? And I think most of us grow up in an educational system that has these ideas baked in about what is genius and who can perform and who is an entrepreneur. And so there's systemic issues. And then there's the like subconscious ways that we code certain things. And both of those things work together. And then on top of that is like the ideologies. Ideologies are the hardest of all because these are things we don't even question, don't know to question because they just get passed down. I mean, any Mormon can kind of understand this a little bit. Right. And then when the fabric rends, you're like, holy crap, <laughs> you know, what else have I missed? And, and I think uh, for me, like going into the scenes of the economy uh, was that moment. The financial crisis maybe was like the faith crisis and like, oh, my God, like no one knows what they're doing. This whole thing is like a Ponzi scheme or something. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not conspiracy. Like there's not like five guys sitting in a room orchestrating it. It's not even that smart. You know, (laughs) it's like a legacy of those stones, but there are a lot of defenders of the status quo and that is a problem. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a great point that it's system. It is hearts and minds and it's individual people and systems working together because what I I was envisioning when you were talking about like who, for example, we are a Silicon Valley family and just picturing who gets money in Silicon Valley. Oh, yeah. It's a system. It's systemic. Our assumptions are created by the systems we see around us. But to your point also, like somebody made those systems up and those are actual just humans with their own biases who are sitting in the room listening to the pitch of the woman of color who's, you know what I mean? I've and so seen it. I've seen it. Hiring. Yeah, yeah, I bet you have. Actually, I've been out hiring for 10 years. I see it in my students. I see it play out all the time. And if you're not aware, you won't see it. But if right. you're aware, it's enraging yep. to see. See, I mean, look at Trump Clinton. I mean, I, I, I cannot stand Clinton. I can't stand Trump. But it's like, oh, my gosh, did you see the way he treated her? And it's it's like patriarchy. You know, when you see it, it's everywhere. And, you know, in hiring committees, I've been in hiring committees where you're like, this 
woman of color is more qualified, like by papers, by any objective measure. But then you get these, ah, I just, there's something about her and it's like the vibe or, and it's like, my colleagues are not racist. These are good people. And I will admit, like early on as a teacher, I had to do a lot of work. But I'm, I was like a feminist in the crib. My mom's like a big feminist, right? And my dad also. And so I was like a liberal kind of like, you know, no difference in humans. And I, you know, raised in a very, like all three of my sisters are, have careers and I'm brown, I'm immigrant. So I have all of those stereotypes thrown at me. I found myself oh, yeah. redoing those stereotypes. We all do. When you catch yourself in it, you're like, but I'm a teacher. So when a teacher does it, it's not acceptable. And I have worked a lot. I've been doing it for 15 years. But it's like I had to force myself. It's like subtle. Like, oh, uh, you know, you cold call. I call on a white guy. I'll stay with him. You would stay with him longer because I like, let me push you on this. Whereas with a girl, maybe I would leave her. Really? Right? Yeah. That was, I mean, that was the first thing I noticed me with you. And I was like, wait, why did I just let? And I'm like, let me push her also. And because you're suddenly sending these messages, maybe. I don't want to scare you. You're going to cry. And and if you do it with love and if you do it, you know, so it's subtle, subtle, subtle things like that, you know, and then I blind grade and I've seen it, you know, I've seen every year because I, once you get the test, it's a number, you don't see the student. So, and every year my students of color get ace women, you know, I had one at BYU where I knew it was a girl's test because she kept saying, I think, I feel, I feel. So I circled and they started circling in her And essay. I gave her in her exam. Like essay test? Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, It's an exam. Yeah, yeah. So I was like, I think, I think, I think. And she had it right. Uh-huh. So I gave her a good grade and then I brought her in. I was like, I just want to show you this. Mm-hmm. If I were another teacher, I would have seen you equivocating. But I read after that, I feel, I think, I think. But I would never, like another teacher would not have given her an A. But I looked and I'm like, you're right. I just know what you're doing. You're qualified. And I saw my students do that, especially BYU, right? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So again, subtle. Yeah. And like you said, it's in all of us. So all we can do is just yeah. constantly try to interrogate and see and, and make the changes we can. So, yeah. Okay. So I'd love you to tell us, first of all, about the Freedmen's Bank. But honestly, before we even do that, I... As a person who's never been in law or in banking or anything, honestly, I think it might help to even start with like, why are banks so important in wealth creation? Like, that's just a bit of the underpinnings of the philosophy and the yeah. function of banks in a in a system. And if, if you read my book and get just that one thing, that'll be enough. I both of my books go into it. Banks are incredibly complex. They're fascinating. So is money. And the problem with banking is that it's so complex and so hard to understand, and it's so counterintuitive that a lot of good people don't understand it. And so they leave it, uh, the theories, to a lot of like big macroeconomists, and those macroeconomists have really ideologically taken hold of the economy in a lot of ways. So a bank is a money multiplier in its simplest form. You put your deposits in a bank. The bank doesn't just keep those deposits. It lends them out. And in so doing, it creates money. So when you give a bank, let's say $100,000 of your money to hold, they're going to lend out 90, 95% of it probably, okay? So you have a a deposit slip that says $100,000. You have that money. That money is in the economy. And then they lend out that $95,000 to somebody else to buy a house. 
that person has $95,000. You still have $100,000. That is new money. And then ad infinitum, keep doing it. So that lending power is the power to create money. It's always been. Money is not like gold bars in the basement. It is credit. And banks have a license from the government to give credit using the state's only source of money. And they don't do it. You don't even need cash, right? You don't need deposits to lend. Okay, you don't have to have the money at the vault. Because when you lend, you're just kind of, you know, now it's all just like a digital transaction. The bank just takes from the Federal Reserve and lends to the borrower. You can put in a little FICO score, sell it to the FHA within a minute, right? The FHA is like a federal housing agency, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, there's secondary markets. It's just easy. So if you qualify for a mortgage, you're going to get a loan, no matter how many deposits that bank has. And then that bank is just going to get that 6%, the whatever interest rate you're paying every month. So, I mean, this is why there's been a lot of conspiracy centered around banking and, and banks. And there isn't a conspiracy here. It really is like magical institution. And the magic isn't the bank. It is uh, the trust. Okay. Everyone trusts that I put my money in a bank and it's going to stay there so they can lend it. That is what gives banks power. And the way that it used to be that you'd have to have like gold bars of the window. It had to, you had to be like JP Morgan to get that kind of trust. And now you have FDIC insurance. The federal government essentially insures all deposits so that you will trust a bank. So the state basically is the banker of last resort. And that gives banks power to create money. And these, this is all good so far. This is all like how things should work. The problem becomes that banks then use all of that state money. That's taxpayer money. We create the state, right? We vote and whatever democracy, da, da, da. And because of our trust in the state and that power that the state has, it gives it to banks. The problem is that banks and the state are, it's, it's a collusion of sorts to enrich just a little minority. So they don't have to give loans to low-income people anymore. They don't. They don't give small business loans. They won't give lo mortgage loans hardly if you're you know, a certain type of borrower. They will do big, big deals. Right now, Wall Street banking is just basically like a market of risk and arbitrage and super complexity, and it's not productive. <laughs> and so that's basically like the trajectory of banks <laughs> in the olden days. So when I talk about the Freedmen's Bank is actually like going back to that, a good example of mm -hmm. a misunderstanding of banks. So you have the Civil War, you have slavery, where for hundreds of years you have this br brutal system of labor, but also of capital. So slave bodies weren't just like cotton producing, you know, they also were collateral on which the entire Southern economy that was an asset. Your slaves were a major asset uh, that you could buy a lot of other things with. And so when the South and the North have this war, one of the things that Lincoln does that pisses off the South more than anything, even freeing the slaves, was to issue the greenback, which is paper money. So paper money is the first time the Constitution didn't resolve it because the South and the North disagreed on this one issue. Because paper money gives the nation the ability to create its own money. Before that, we were sort of still attached to the British gold standard in a way. So the revolution didn't fully free us because of slavery, I would argue, because they kept that indebtedness to Great Britain. Great Britain 
we were their number one cotton importers. And all of that cotton trade was the British export. So their entire economy ran on the cotton that we gave through slavery to that. So that system kept slavery intact. And then the Civil War happens and Lincoln issues a greenback and wins both the battlefield and the money war and then is killed, obviously. And at that point, what the just thing that everyone who were the, you know, Republicans at the time arguing for, like the, you know, Thaddeus Stevens and Sherman Grant, all these guys that like defeated the treasonous South were like, well, let's divide up the land and give it to everybody, right? Including, you know, yeoman farmers and whatever. But instead what happened was basically the old plantation bosses used white supremacy to divide the white poor from the black poor, right? So instead of all of the sharecroppers getting land, the plantation owners got it and cotton became a debt crop and white supremacy reigned. So then you have Jim Crow for the next. Jim Crow was not part of slavery. Neither was segregation. It was after. It was a way for the Democratic Party to divide up the South, to to stay in that industrial cotton plantation economy. And the Freedmen's Bank was supposed to be this, like, let slaves, the freedmen were going to get this bank that was going to, one, keep their money safe, and also, two, be a means of built wealth building. And uh, what happened was that you know, these white managers came in and took, there's like a, a $1.5 billion in today's money, which was a lot then, and speculated it on railroad bonds and lost the money. I mean, this is like money that sharecroppers were saving for homes in this bank. Exactly. And it wasn't it wasn't insured by the federal government, even though it had all of the federal government papers on it. And W.E.B. Du Bois, who is the best historian America has ever produced and very, very prolific, um, wrote in his Black Reconstructions, like a thousand page magnum opus on the entire Southern history. And he says, if they had been in slavery another 10 years, it wouldn't have been as bad as that bank. Because what that does is, in, I mean, it's just distrust. It's a loss of that vitality. And so you see, and you see that a lot. Like when a bank fails with your money, it is a catastrophe. <laughs> and so black bankers, I just followed that legacy, you know, and it was racism, right? It was racism that that why they have to have white managers, you know, <laughs> exactly. Uh, why why couldn't it have been a black manager, right? Well, and I just want to point out too, you said, didn't Frederick Douglass step in? Frederick Douglass step in, save yeah. the bank at the end and put in yeah. his own money and lost all yes. that money too. Yes. I yeah. cried reading that. Moment. Yeah, it was it is awful? It's awful and. It's awful. And what's fascinating about history is when you're in these documents, how explicitly racist it is. You're not looking, you are looking on the front page of like that, these, you know, N words, you know, like they're not fit to whatever. I mean, it's really, it's quite obvious. And so people are like, oh, well, racism doesn't exist. You're like, literally, it's in the document. Like it's in the contract, you know, yep. look up your deed. I mean, I had a student in Georgia do this found my deed for my house and it says this house shall not be sold to anyone not of the white caucasian you know it was just like yeah. standard and that's how the freedmen's bank it didn't get prosecuted you know no recourse even though the government could have made people whole so that's that's sort of the start and i don't even think that's the worst part about it right the worst part is then you get these 
policymakers saying, oh, it's just like because people don't know how to use their money. It's just with any financial education, right? So it's that. It's like the theft and then the insult that it was your fault, right? It's like a gaslighting uh, historically. And then after that, you, you know, you just kind of follow. And it's, it isn't, again, it's not a conspiracy. It is the way that once slavery ends, all of these myths that were used to justify the wholesale oppression of a race, the myths being first like, oh, God said that this, you know, and then, oh, it's racial inferiority. It's whatever myths those stayed because we didn't deal with it because America was still divided and because a lot of people in the North couldn't admit to their role in it, right? And then that, that's the problem. It's like, oh, it's those backward Southerners that did it. It's like, no, it was the industrials Wall Street that also did it. And so you create this deal and Lincoln would have done it. I mean, no doubt Lincoln would have fixed it, but that can happen, right? And so the ideologies that sort of self-reproduce into new systems if they're not dealt with. But I'm hoping that as we educate ourselves about history and as we educate ourselves about ideology, we both free our own minds from it and also create systems whereby we can actually change things without having to do revolution <laughs> in the class sense. Because I think that's the other thing is people, like, I want this to change, but like, I don't like the options that we have for presidents. First of all, that's not an avenue of change necessarily. And I don't want to do a revolution. I don't either. I don't want any more violence, period. I don't no. actually want to even punish anybody. I just want to work together, right? I think that's where gender comes in. I think we need to consider what a feminine, not, I'm not saying female, what a feminine value system, what a feminine economy would value, right? What uh, besides scarcity, right? Because women understand, right, abundance. Like we can create life out of no life, right? And we can create uh, you know, you're, you have three kids fighting. You can resolve that. You're not going to choose one over the other two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, you know, and and it's it's this. It's like we we don't see those binaries. We can make another like all three kids can get what they want. You just have to be a little bit creative. You know, yeah. so it's like oh, you you know, you want uh, schools, you want roads, you want whatever. Let's like no reason to have to fight about it. Why not a war? Uh-huh. Yeah, and that was that's the magic of money and banking is that's exact thing that banks do is you trust a system and it creates abundance. If it yeah. works the way it's supposed to work, you're saying. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. So maybe the next place we can go chronologically is what happened after the Freedmen's Bank because I was really interested to yeah. read yeah. that you listed like all of these Black thinkers, intellectuals, and leaders from Booker T. Washington to President Obama, Martin Luther King, saying like they really supported the idea of a black bank. MLK said, yeah. take your money out of the banks downtown and deposit it into a black-owned bank. So yeah. after the failure of the Freedmen's Bank, there was a lot of, there was still a lot of encouragement, like, no, put your money in a black bank. What happened with all of these black-owned banks yeah. for the course of the next decades? Right. So there's two different 
types of supporters. I, I did think it was interesting that like you have like everywhere from like Reagan to like Malcolm X. <laughs> so yeah, Malcolm X, but obviously it's very different and it was just fascinating. So black owned banks were a necessity during Jim Crow. And one of the first black owned banks was Maggie Walker's bank. And she was the first woman also to own a bank. And she was born a slave and had an Irish dad, I think, and uh, abusive parentage. Uh, her mom was fine. Her dad, I think, was a little bit abusive and then got into an abusive marriage. So she was on her own, didn't have kids, and was part of a church society, the St. Luke's organization. And through that, created like a newspaper. And she just was like a active person in the community and created a bank that was the most successful bank of any bank. You know, during the Great Depression, there was like eight or so black banks that survived out of like 150. And it's because of her. She gave them liquidity. She gave like 600 mortgages, you know, and she will say she's like, my aim was for the women of my race. Like I wanted to give them freedom. Right. So a lot of them were that kind of bank, uh, black owned banks that were created out of necessity and they were attached to some church or some society of some kind that was already doing other things. Um, and then during the civil rights era, during every civil rights era, there had been many civil rights eras. And during those, black banks could be a place where you could take your money out of the banks that would punish you, like especially in the South. So MLK, he's saying we need, so like look at the Montgomery bus boycott. It's like a boycott, Jim put pressure. And what the banks were doing is like first not taking deposits. They were mistreating, they were harassing you know one black banker says his daughter got harassed in a bank like physically assaulted and so he created a bank so women could go and not be assaulted and then during the civil rights movement a lot of those banks were created as part of that whole system and then you have this pivot to the nixon era that uses these black owned banks and black institutions to say that like Oh, what Nixon doesn't want to do is integrate. So Nixon does the Southern strategy, same thing that happened during Reconstruction, which is we need to get the vote here of the South. And the way to do it is to give the white poor something. And so Nixon does some race baiting. So it's George Wallace initiated, you know, segregation forever. And these guys are giving them anything. They're not giving this out. They're they're taking stuff. But you can rile people up by pointing outwards, right? It's like, oh, it's the Mexicans' fault. It's the Black people's fault that you're suffering. So that's what Nixon does. And very also obviously, like this is in their archives. They're like, yeah, we criminalized drugs. Why do you think we did it? Yeah, John Elrickman, his top eight is like, we had two enemies, Black people and like Jews or something. Just like, just, or like, uh, you know, they're very clear. Um, So then you have the system where Black-owned banks are like, look, you have your banks, we have our banks, we don't want to integrate. And that's also when affirmative action is, that's who starts it, is Nixon. He has this idea of like Black capitalism. So this is in chapter six of my book. And I start the next book also on this moment because I think it's it's a moment that we get wrong about American history, specifically in the last little bit. It was like, oh, affirmative action. Like that's, this was a Nixon concession instead of civil rights, we'll hire jobs, we'll ask people to volunteer and and did it also to divide up labor, right? He a purposeful like forcing labor because he they were against labor unions too. So if you give labor unions, oh you have quotas now, 
you know, and you have to change your whole seniority system, got those guys angry. And so that was a benefit there. And so I'm a little bit ambivalent about the idea of black banks because it's right now you can have a black owned bank that's not really doing anything. It's just, uh, you know, uh, stand in like affirmative action. You know, you're not changing the system that creates these disparities. You're getting people when they're applying to college and maybe putting at them on the scale, not anymore, obviously, but also creating a culture war. I mean, affirmative action has done more for the right than any other single thing because it makes interest people on the right think that, oh, the problem is affirmative action. It's like, that's a nothing burger. It's a nothing, you know? And what didn't get fixed is segregation and the racial wealth gap and the things that really all the civil rights leaders were fighting for. Nobody lobbied for affirmative action. Nobody asked for that. They were asking, I mean, King, X, I mean, they all got killed, right? But the things that they were asking for was justice, you know? And that, I think, also we get wrong in that that was not delivered. And, you know, there were laws passed. Things did get better in certain ways, but they shifted toward new ideologies. And this this is this is where, we're, where we are now. I think some of those ideologies are falling apart. And I think the danger is that another ideology will take its place rather than the thing being fixed. Mm-hmm. Well, can you talk a little bit more about, you call it the decoy of Black capitalism. Can you dig into that, to that a little bit more? Because that's With a persistent this, idea, right? Yeah. Like this, you know, the decoy here is that, oh, you know, instead of justice, uh, you know, you've got these segregated communities, right? So one community got these federally subsidized home mortgage loans from 1930 after the Great Depression until 1970. The entire American like middle class is built with this subsidized mortgage, right? And that mortgage isn't available to Black people because they are Black. And in the neighborhoods that they are, it's not available. Cannot get it. So then you have, so you have Black people in inner cities who cannot leave. Everyone else can leave, like the, the Irish and the Italians and everyone else that was also discriminated against now gets to be white, goes into like Levittown, these suburbs. Orange County, where I live, was basically created in 1968 from this FHA program. And you can go look at the redlined areas. You can go, you know, right now and look at redline maps in LA and see how they looked at the neighborhood. And it's actually hilarious. So like, there are some subversive races in this neighborhood, you know, or like literally. And it's like, you know, bad Mexicans or, you know, the low class Polish. I mean, it's quite detailed and funny, right? But not in the way that it's, those neighborhoods are still deprived of, right? So, so then those create all these other, so now you have schools being funded by the taxes of the properties and they create these boundaries such that the taxes can't escape, right? So now you have this like race to the bottom where certain neighborhoods are worth way more. And it's bad for everybody because you, if you want to get in a good school now, have to pay a crap ton more and gate up rather than actually integrate, which is mm-hmm. the way to benefit all the, all the kids. And, and, and they did it through fear. Uh, one, they took maybe like the low grade kind of discomfort with otherness that existed and added fuel to the fire. Because people also used to be really discriminatory toward Irish. They thought that they were inherently violent. They were discriminatory toward Italians. They thought they were, yeah, all of those stereotypes. And within a few years of 
those guys being neighbors and intermarrying, those go away. Those, you know, so policy can change hearts and minds quickly. Mm-hmm. So then why didn't they do it? Well, they needed that. They needed that structure for many economic reasons. So when it was time to change that, and that's what the civil rights leaders were saying, go, like, this is the problem. You know, you've got all of these um, economic systems and laws that prevent it. Instead of fixing it, they uh, Nixon used rhetoric around it. He twisted it into like, oh, you're asking for state help and we're going to respond with capitalism. And neither of those things were true. <laughs> right? uh, it was all law from the beginning. And what Nixon was offering was not capitalism. Mm-hmm. It was uh, neither black, black capitalism nor capitalism. But that was the idea is like, oh, affirmative action, you're going to earn it rather than get it for free. And that that's actually the exact language they use for the Freedmen's Bank. You should earn land. You should earn land, not get it for free. Earn land after hundreds of years of slavery. This is in 1865. They said, oh, you haven't earned this land. We will give you a bank account so you can earn it. So you see the same rhetoric. Oh, you, you, you need to earn it, right? And that's where those myths lie in wait of a new demand and people... We're all after fairness, right? We want things to be fair. And you can tell people it's not fair. Affirmative action is not fair. And that like actually makes sense. If if you're a busy person who doesn't have time to read all this history, you're like, yeah, that, that doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem fair. Uh, but then you look at the whole sphere of it. You're like, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, so yeah. So then that's what people like me do is to try to get people interested in understanding the bigger picture and try to contextualize all of these little things that you think it's about for reaction. Let me let me tell you where that comes from. And hopefully uh, if someone reads the book, they can just get not just understand the black racial wealth gap, but also understand a lot of these myths. It's not just about black people. It's also like you could apply it to student loans. You can apply it to the generational divide, the fact that like my students who are graduating law school are not no longer able to buy houses, you know, and uh, the fact that like the boomers have so many houses and so much money is because of the federal grants that existed for them. You know, they weren't harder working. They just had more opportunities provided to them by the government. Yeah, that's, that's how money works. Yeah. Okay. Maybe the last topic we can hit as we're going kind of forward in history. Yeah is kind of as I was approaching the end of your book and I'm like, oh, okay, now we're in the years that I remember, right? Um, I thought it was so telling. I'll read a quote. In 1983, that was when President Ronald Reagan made Martin Luther King Day a national holiday. And he said, quote, we've made historic strides since Rosa Parks refused to go into the back of the bus. As a democratic people, we can take pride in the knowledge that we Americans recognized a grave injustice and took action to correct it. We Americans, don't you love that? End quote. Yes. And then you write how he, I mean, speaking of, like you said, with Nixon, using rhetoric, <laughs> just like talking at it yes, as almost like a smokescreen too. just like, well, I'm going to do a magic trick and distract you over here by saying there's no problem and then I get to do whatever I want. And you write how President Reagan consistently maintained opposition to civil rights laws because he believed them to be unnecessary. They were a government intrusion into private markets. And so maybe the last pieces that I might have you talk about are in the 1980s and 90s, and maybe these persist even in decades after that, with subprime loans. This was so striking to me. Subprime loans for Black Americans 
even in high income neighborhoods. Right. So it really it was race. It really was yeah. like they were discriminated against. It was race. OK, there's a lot here. Let me uh, start with Martin Luther King, because we just had the, the, the day. It's like the most um, misunderstood figure in history. Martin Luther King is actually as amazing as you know, he's not overrated. He's she is underrated of anything. She truly uh, uh, the things he said were way bigger than that. I have a dream. And it was also I have a dream. It was also content of character, but also justice. Yep. And she was, I mean, hated. I mean, like the FBI, I, like it's very clearly uh, had him as a number one domestic enemy. And I won't go into like, you know, how he died, but like it's clear that they were infiltrating all of the, the civil rights groups. And Reagan at the time was California governor and called protesters like, you know, these are enemies of the, you know, she, she was not a fan of civil rights and made his rise, you know, rose as California governor by going hard against the protesters in, in Berkeley and, and Oakland. And so when Martin Luther King, when the day becomes a holiday, it's like the war is already over. The civil rights era is like crushed and there's really no avenue. So you bring this person up to say, we've done it, we fixed it. And at this point, and this is where my third book fills in a lot of gaps, a lot of the money has already infiltrated the federal government. Nixon kind of opens the door to that. And now I'm just talking about straight corruption, uh, not just like, oh, ideology. I mean, it was always a little bit of that. But here we're talking about like these think tanks that are doing this spinning around and creating these like programs. Like when Reagan goes in, the Heritage Foundation basically staffs his entire administration, right? And one of their agenda items was tax cuts and real, like this is, I mean, real corporate handouts. The Reagan administration completely changes Wall Street such that it becomes a, a financialized country. That era of greed was during the Reagan era because they deregulated the banking sector completely, basically, while shrinking up the Federal Reserve's money printer. This is Al and Greece banks constantly throwing money at Wall Street. Whenever there's a dip or crisis, she's kind of turning on the money machine, right? So it's, it's a really cozy relationship that's happening up there while we're losing unions, we're losing pensions, we're losing jobs. Not just Black people. This is lots of people. This is when things went offshore. This is when your pension as a, you know, if you're a pilot for you know, 30 years, you had a pension and you lost it because of some corporate restructuring, right? The deal with the American public changes during this era. And how do you change a deal with people? How do you take away something from them? Is race works phenomenally well. Or the weaponization of racism and here gender, right? And the buying of congressmen and laws became much more standardized during that era. So, you know, going to these black owned banks, a subprime crisis now. So as Wall Street becomes unregulated, and hyperdrive. So money now becomes this abstract global commodity that you can grow into abundance. Like during the New Deal, FDR taxed income above a million at 95%. You couldn't. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And until the 1980s when Reagan comes in, the gap between the CEO of a company and workers was like, you know, the CEO would be making like Jim Roche was GM's head. He made like 250. 
And like the top paid employee would be like, I don't know, 100 or 80. Right? Oh, wow. Crazy. Yeah. Yes. Like, Crazy. The most you got was like five times as much. And that yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. after the 80s, it's like, I mean, it's absurd. Yeah. The orders of magnitude. Orders of magnitude. You're yeah. different classes of beings, yeah. right? And a CEO before was like someone who could manage the company. A CEO after is like someone who could slice up the company and sell to private equity. Yeah. What? For parts. Yeah. For finance. Right. So then private equity becomes like the leverage buyout. This becomes like the financialization of our economy, like the sucking the marrow out of the economy because private equity doesn't add value. They say it makes things efficient, but you know, you look at hospitals, you look at healthcare, they come in and for existing industries, the first thing to go is employee pensions, second to go is employees, <laughs> right? Because they have an incentive and that incentive is to increase yield on capital. That incentive is not to create jobs and communities. And you're like, well, why would it be? Well, what is an economy for? Right? What is the economy for? <laughs> and, and I think those things changed. The only thing that matters in an economy is yield for shareholders. As measured in a very narrow way by this formula, you know, and you couldn't make this argument, like, shouldn't a good company be one that shares with its employees, builds nice things, like creates a community of beauty or something? whatever that is, right? JFK has a speech, like, why don't we me measure a GDP of like children being fed and, and like, you know, and, and going to the moon was this thing, right? We can make a GDP out of anything. We can measure economic metrics out of anything we want. And the way we do it is geared toward a certain outcome. Mm -hmm. And uh, that outcome is dividing us. It is destroying our communities. It is creating inequalities that are not just bad for the people at the bottom, but bad for the people at the top. Bad for us, the soul of our country. And I don't know of a single person that lives in this world now who feels like things are fair. Yeah, and my kid has the same chances as any kid, regardless of, like, nobody thinks that. <laughs> and the fact that nobody thinks that is scary because if I don't think that, you know, I'm an academic, so I'm going to spend my time writing about thinking about it, right? But you see, historically, when you have inequality like this, uh, there are scapegoats and fascists that are promise people they will fix it. People understand that something's wrong. And the problem is that everyone has these theories, and some of those theories end up regurgitating some of the worst ideologies in history, and they're going to be racist, they're going to be sexist, and they're going to go away. That's the problem. Yep. Okay. So one of the really most heartbreaking stories that kind of evoked, again, the Freedmen's Bank of mm -hmm. the earlier century was Jackie Robinson's Freedom National Bank of Harlem. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. Jackie Robinson, if people know, he's he like integrated baseball. He went to World War II and the first integrated troops, like a national hero. He's like a really good guy, too. He creates this bank in Harlem, the Freedom Bank. And he's a rich guy. He doesn't. He's doing it for the community. He realizes that Harlem doesn't have a black bank, and a lot of these banks start in that same way, just like out of the goodness of his heart. And she is stuck, as are many black bankers, between wanting to help his community and being in this trap. Because the thing that's important to understand about black banking, which we didn't talk about, which is kind of what my book is about, is that 
unless you are plugged into that machine, that money printer, it is impossible to do banking. That, that was the original idea of this book is let me show you how banking works by showing you what happens when a bank is outside of that. Yeah. And the problem is you've got deposits that are volatile, poor people. The homes that you're lending to are underwater. You're not getting any of the goodies from the federal government and it's impossible to bank. And it's a trap. And I follow it through. It's tragic reading these memoirs. I mean, Jackie Robinson, the regulators are breathing down his neck because he doesn't have like the numbers. And then the community is like, you're, you know, like a capitalist bad guy because you're not giving these loans. It's so stressful that the bank essentially, I think, kills him. Like she has high blood pressure and she's like a 55-year-old guy. He wasn't old and had done all of this amazing stuff. And it's because of the bank. And he writes about it in his memoirs, the most sad thing ever because I'm reading this as someone in this, you know, so far out in history and having studied this and he's talking about the bank and it's like he blames himself. He's like, I just don't think I was good enough at it. Maybe I didn't try enough. You're like, no, you know, and I read, you know, about his death and it's like it was just stress and nobody says like it's the bank, but it's she was under regulatory supervision, which wasn't like it wasn't doing anything wrong, but he just couldn't make it work. And and then that bank, when it did fail in the 70s or 80s, the FDIC comes in and does this weird thing where they just liquidate the bank for unknown reasons. Usually when a bank fails, they sell it to somebody else. They try to do it. But, you know, look, you look back in history in Harlem, which was the biggest black population, didn't have a bank for the time that they should have. When the Renaissance was happening, when Chicago had like five black banks, Harlem had none. And the reason is because Chase Manhattan liked to take deposits in Harlem and lend them downtown. And Chase Madani also was part of the state banking commission right. that could deny charters. And so there's all these banks that are trying to get charters and they're not getting. So it's actually um, creating wealth for white people, essentially, yes. right? And they're taking black people's money and the yes. money is being siphoned almost. And it's growing, but for its enriching exactly. white community. Because like I said, for when we started this conversation, a loan is how you make money. And they want loan. Team buyer won't loan. And the reason they wouldn't loan, and you know, I read this in a PhD dissertation by this guy who was like very like proud of saying this. He's like, they weren't entrepreneurs. They weren't business. Oh my gosh. It's just like the shoe black thing, right? It's like, we are not giving you a loan because you're not an entrepreneur. It's like, well, give me a loan and let me be an entrepreneur. But that systematic way of like, nobody was getting loans. And therefore, how could you be an entrepreneur? So how could you? Right? Yeah. 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 Oh, it's so heartbreaking. Okay, well, what's the state of things today? And then my final question, is there anything that listeners can do to help? Learn learn, and be aware. And I think most people know their own expertise. Use your own expertise. Like, I'm here to give you, this is my, like, the true thing. I, I wrote this book for no other purpose than to get this story right. And read that if you're interested. And then when you can unravel one myth in your mind, I think that's just a power that you get that helps with all sorts of other things. And I think it's like this passive thing I see in teaching every year. You almost don't know you're learning. Like, and you kind of take for granted all the stuff. You know, if I take my students from like the first day of law school in contracts, I have them till the end. There's so much, there's like a way that their mind works at the end of the semester that they don't. And I see that every year. It's like, you guys have no idea how to think. And then by the end, they're just like, you know, that's how it is when you read and understand history. And I think it just allows you to see the world in a more rich, empathetic, 
way you can extend that empathy like you said it's heartbreaking you can kind of extend the circle of care beyond the people that you know by knowing more about these histories i think so maybe just that and also use you know your own inspiration awesome well, thank you so much again, Marisa Baradaran. Thank you for your work. Thank you for this book. I learned so much. Super looking forward to your next book. I really appreciate you being here today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate this. And thank you for doing this podcast. It's such a great resource to have. And I hope everyone listens to all of that. And that wraps up today's episode. Before I go, I want to thank Sam Rose Preminger for our editing and production and Aubrey Iyer for our social media. And as always, I want to thank you listeners for being here. Make sure to check out our YouTube channel, Breaking Down Patriarchy, which features short, super entertaining videos that were created specifically to be able to share with friends and family members. Huge thanks to Ralph Blair and Aubrey Iyer for their genius work on that series. And if you want to show your appreciation for this excellent ad-free content, the most helpful thing you can do is to forward this episode to your friends and family and leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. These reviews really do help people find the podcast, and the more people listen, the greater the impact of this grassroots movement to break down the patriarchal structures in our institutions and our relationships and build egalitarian structures in their place. Thanks again for joining me and make sure to tune in next time for another fascinating episode on breaking down patriarchy.